Would you please pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this day and this week where we can step aside and reflect upon all the blessings you've showered upon us, chiefly among them your love for us in Jesus Christ. And on this final Sunday of the season of Pentecost, recognizing that you are king, may that reality resonate in our hearts into eternity. Take our minds now, think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Is there in your life or was there ever a person in your life who just wouldn't stop talking. They go on and on and on and on, never giving room for anybody else, just, just keep talking, like those cartoon characters, right? I had one of those in my life from first grade all the way through fifth grade. I'll call him Ricky D, not Ricky Calvert. Ricky Calvert's my buddy. When I talk to Ricky, it's like picking up where we left off. But this kid never would stop talking, and he was a bully, so you had to listen, because he was bigger, faster, stronger than you, and so we'd try to gang up on him to get him to stop talking, you know, because it was terrible. I mentioned that because as we approach Thanksgiving and our readings remind us that we're coming to grateful hearts, it's tough to come with a grateful heart if you have great anxiety. Because the enemy of gratitude is anxiety. And in today's digital world, anxiety is epidemic, not only for our young people, but for adults as well. It's actually an epidemic. And Tim Keller defines anxiety as your heart running at the mouth. And it won't stop talking to you. Think of it that way. Your heart and all its fears and worries all the time just running at the mouth telling you all that you need to be worried about. It's anxiety. And Jesus doesn't come along here in the Sermon on the Mount and like, you know, that old coach of yours that's about 200 pounds overweight with a, a, a encyclopedia of keys on his belt telling you to suck it up. Jesus doesn't come along like a drill sergeant and say, get going. No. In today's passage, like our gracious, humble, and gentle Lord that he is, asks us to do three things. So I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at these things. He gives us a word that we're to ponder and think. Notice as he begins this discussion, he says, verse 26, look. Verse 28, consider. Those are Greek and Hebrew words that are telling us to slow down, step back, and think. Thinking's not the absence of faith. What do you think faith is? Do you think faith is just closing your eyes and jumping? Do you think 
faith is, well, it doesn't matter. That's where faith comes in if I can't figure it out. Is that the way Jesus talks? No, it's not. Jesus says faith is thinking. He says it's, it's anxiety that's the absence of thinking. You see, when you're sitting and listening to your heart run off at the mouth, that makes you scared. That's what cripples you. When your heart starts to ramble on and on and on, therefore you're just reacting to situations. It runs at, your, at the mouth the way you do, and therefore you think before you speak, or you don't think before you speak. And you're lying in your bed thinking, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be bad. What am I going to do about this? You're listening to your heart instead of talking to your heart. And Jesus wants us to sit down and ask our hearts to say, hey, heart, look at the facts here. And what you do is you wrestle with your heart. Faith is not passing peaceful hearts through your mind, and faith is not turning your mind off. Faith is a position of confidence toward the world based on what God's word has said. And if you don't believe God has spoken in the word, I would propose there's no way to deal with your anxiety. But if you understand that God has spoken and you take it and you wrestle with your heart yourself, Jesus gives us some strategies here today. The first one is we go to the word and see that God is in charge. All right? Notice verse 28. Like I said, verse uh, 26 to 28, he says, look at the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. All right? What he's saying there is God takes care of all their needs, even though they're not in charge at all. You don't have the power to even add one minute to your life. God's in charge. He's sovereign. He's the God of providence. Now, when we think of the word providence, most of us just think of some city in Rhode Island, right? But the reality is, it's the word, the root word is provi of providence. Provideo. He sees everything. Everything he's part that happens in our lives is part of God's provision. Ephesians 1.11 says God's working, working it out according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8.28, you know it. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Jesus says there's absolutely no way that you could possibly deal with anxiety unless you believe that. So someone comes along and says, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. I feel like I'm just kind of a puppet. I feel that everything's determined. doesn't matter what I do. Well, if you jump to that conclusion, you've moved from the biblical doctrine of providence to the pagan idea of fate. They're not the same thing. For example, Acts 2.23, that's the place in the Bible where Peter is talking to the people in Jerusalem, and he says, every one of you, to the crowd, Christ was delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. Did you hear that? When Jesus Christ died, wasn't that death foreordained? Wasn't it planned? And yet, it says, 
He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and yet, even though you were destined to kill him, even though it was purposed that you kill him, it was a wicked thing that you killed him. And what God is saying, what Peter is saying, the wickedness in your heart, you're responsible for. Your choices are responsible. God doesn't make you wicked, but on the other hand, God works through your choices to his perfect plan. That's why Joseph could talk to his brothers who sold him into slavery. He went down into Egypt. He was almost put to death. But then he eventually became a powerful man. And he saved his family out of famine. He looks at his brothers and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What does that mean? Well, Joseph said, God led you to sell me into slavery, and it was all part of his plan. It was terrible, fellas. It was awful. But it was part of his plan, and it was good. Does that mean, brothers, you didn't do anything wrong? You couldn't help yourself? It was fated? Of course not. Joseph didn't mean that, and the brothers knew he didn't mean that. Therefore, they wept at his feet. They repented. Because, you see, they were responsible for the choice they had made. And yet, God worked out his counsel with infallibility. Jesus says, until you understand that and believe that, it's impossible for you to deal with your anxiety. That's the reason why... We can all say in Romans 8, 28, all things work for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The minute you stop being the center of your universe, the minute you do that, you become the center of the universe to God. You know, some of you, let me give you a little example, personally shared. Some of you have been really helped by my ministry among you. You know, why am I here when you think about it? Well, I am here because of my denominational connection. I'm an Anglican Christian. I came this close to being in the Presbyterian Church in America. Why'd that happen? Martin Mintz said, what's taking you so long? Here, apply for this job in South Carolina. I go to South Carolina. Reed Henseling says, you need to go to seminary. Vestry says I need to go to seminary. Okay, I'll go to seminary. So I go to seminary in Pittsburgh where I had no money. How would I go there? Well, there was a group of people from Truro who said, go Gene. They gave me money. Right, just gave me money. And I had a group of people in Pittsburgh that said, well, we got a scholarship. It's got $1.5 million in it, and we just will support you. I asked the rector, well, how much do, what's this position pay? He goes, just give us your budget. You mean, tell me what I need? He goes, yeah, and more, by the way. So I moved to Ambridge and ministered in Christchurch, Greensburg, due to a woman named Hattie Jameson. You think Hattie Jameson knew Gene Sherman in 1999 would move to Ambridge and use that money to prepare for ministry? 
I go for four years at Trinity Beaver. They decided my vision was too big for them, so I had to look for a job. I started looking for a job. Couldn't find one. You know? I'm not the fit for every place. Being a kind of a Presbyterian in Anglican clothing. <laughs> it's true. I don't preach like some guys do. Next thing you know, I hear about this church in Bay Village, Ohio. Low Church Evangelical. I say, Kimmy, look at this place. Low Church Evangelical. So I apply. I come up. I'm down to the final two. They chose the other guy. <laughs> I'm talking to Art. I'm like, okay, I think you got it wrong because I, uh, I, I, I interviewed in a church in Dallas. You ever been to Texas? It's hot in December. I interviewed in Tennessee while they were going through the discernment process and giving this guy time to decide. I, I, I just don't see it. I think, I think I'm called here. I don't get it, but I'm going to trust the process. Next thing I know, about three weeks later, I get a call from Art, and he says, funny thing, the guy turned us down. <laughs> Are you still interested? I said, yeah, I, I feel I'm called here. So 14 years later, here we are, healthier than ever, hanging in there, ministering to the gospel, and you sing so well, brothers and sisters. God's sovereign every step of the way. And it's not easy. You've got to talk to your heart. There's got to come to that place where you finally say, I'm not going to be the center of the universe. And when you say that, you become the center of the universe for God and for the whole body of Christ, as you can see. You know, um, you get there, um, it means you get a conviction that he will not give you anything that's wrong or bad. You have, to, you have to believe that to your very core. See, when you're a kid, you believe that everything your parents are teaching you is bad. They were ruining my life, you know. Gene, don't stick the fork into the outlet, you know. Gene, stop eating dirt, you know. <laughs> you know. Ricky, my best friend Ricky Calvert and I, we were in the Batman and Robin. And, you know, if you climb out of Bo's window onto the roof, we could get on the roof. So we put on our masks. We put on our capes. We got on the roof, and we said, if we jump, we can make it if we land just right. And so it's a summer day. The windows are open, and my mom hears, one, two. And she runs out and goes, what are you doing? We said, we're... <laughs> these two seven-year-old boys on a roof that's 15 to 18 feet high. We're playing Batman and Robin. Get off the roof, you idiots, and get inside. We're climbing to the roof. That woman is ruining my life. As I got older, I realized that woman saved my life every day. But didn't feel like it at that moment, right? It's important that we understand this. Some people say, if I really trusted in Jesus in this way, if I really trusted him, gave my life to him, he may start to tell me things I don't want to do. 
He may start to give me things that I don't want to have. He may start to command me to do things I don't want to obey. Well, of course, he'll tell you things you don't want to do. What's the use of having a king if you're wise and smart enough to do it yourself? It's Christ the King Sunday. You have a king, and the king is there because you're not as wise and smart enough to know how to control your own life. Abraham didn't give up on Isaac. Moses didn't want to go to Pharaoh. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, but his will is wise and right and good, and the people who submit to the king's will will spend the next billion years thanking him for his will by sending his son to die for us upon the cross. Of course he's not safe. Who said anything that he's safe? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is in control. That's step number one. Second step is a lot shorter. But the other thing we need to do is use that grass of the field. Verse 32, he says, Your father knows what you need. That's where you get into your heart and you wrestle God's love into your heart. You say to your heart, listen, heart, you know that he loves me. All the hairs on my head, all the tears that have gone down my cheeks, he knows that. He kn- I know that he didn't spare even his own son for me. So how is he going to fail to give me everything that I need? You wrestle with your heart in that way. You argue with it. You begin to realize anxiety is essentially a daily text to God that says, I don't think you have your best, my best interests in your mind. Anxiety is essentially saying, Father, you emptied heaven and earth of your greatest treasure. You executed your son voluntarily for me, and I'm not sure you're going to know how to arrange my life, my week, my day. We're all guilty of it, right? But there's no way any of us would put up with someone like that. And yet, God loves us infinitely. Wrestle with your heart and say to it, he's my father. He loves me with an everlasting love. The third strategy is to go on a search mission daily. And seek God. Verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Translated, seek the relationship with God and his kingdom people. Live in it. God will take care of the rest. Okay? You know what that means. You remember Mary and Martha, the story? Jesus came to their house, and Martha ran around literally. It says she was anxious doing many things. It's the same word here. All right? Mary sat at Jesus' feet and comes to Martha. Jesus comes to Martha and says, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many, many things. One thing is necessary. Mary's found it. Sit. Focus on me. And what Jesus is saying is worry is always a lack of proportion. If Jesus is the center, there will be no anxiety. If your business and profession 
if your relationships, if your material comforts, if your money, if anything else is the center of your being, is more important than Jesus Christ, you're going to be anxious. Your fears will be like breadcrumbs. You follow them and it'll take you to the witch's house. Your anxieties come from a lack of proportion, the lack of a sense of proportion. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Put me first. That means every part of our lives, our time in God's word, our prayer lives, our ministry, our love for one another here at Christ Church, growing in his grace, knowing the Lord, growing in the Lord, serving the Lord, and Jesus says, I can guarantee your other concerns will go because you'll be able to think about me more and you'll be able to trust me more. There's a story that's said, I don't know if it's historically true, but it's really good, that Queen Elizabeth, the first Queen Elizabeth, once told a man that she needed his skills to go and help discover the new world, and they needed him badly. And the man looked at her and said to her, your majesty, I'm just a small businessman, and my business is floundering. If I go, my business will sink. She looked at him and said, my dear friend, you mind my business, and I'll mind yours. <laughs> Immediately, all the fear left him, because when he thought about it for just a second, he goes, the sovereign monarch, the queen, will look after my business. If I mind her business, she'll mind mine. That's a deal. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you. It's the same deal. Right thinking, right priorities. If we have wrong thinking, we'll have wrong priorities. So there's a couple kinds of people here today. There are those of you who certainly have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and your King, who recognize that it's one thing to put faith in Him and enter the kingdom. It's another thing to walk with Him day by day by day by day. I can remember some years ago when I was at Trinity Beaver talking to a guy who, who wanted to get married, and he, he wanted to marry a woman who she wasn't a believer. I said, do you trust in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Do you trust your sins are covered? Yes. I certainly believe that. Well, do you trust him enough to obey what it says in his word about not marrying someone who's not a believer? Silence. Because you see, it's one thing to believe in him. It's another thing to believe in him. It's one thing to believe in God. Lots of people believe in God, right? But do you believe in God? Jesus Christ comes and says, trust me. Not just believe in me, trust me for all your life. Listen to what I say. Obey me. Seek first my kingdom, my righteousness, and I'll take care of the rest. There are some of you, perhaps, that are possibly here saying, you know, I've never really placed my trust in Jesus Christ in this way. I've never received him as Savior. I've never put him at the center of my life. And therefore, you're thinking, I wish I would like to, 
but I've never been able to believe in that way. I wish I could, but I've never really done that, and I couldn't believe in that way. Listen, there are only two doctrines on which you base your life. Two. Either you're competent to run your own life or God is. Which one will it be? Your problem when you say, I can't believe, it's not really fair to put it that way. Your real problem is you refuse to doubt yourself because you think you're competent to run your own life. And you're afraid to give your life to Jesus and you think you're competent to run your own life, but that's an act of absolutely blind faith. There's really no evidence for it. You know it. It's a leap against the evidence. You refuse to doubt yourself, and that's why you can't believe. Don't tell me you can't believe in God. What you mean is I refuse to doubt myself, even though I have every bit of evidence. I don't care how successful you are. Even the most successful people are making a total mess of some parts of their lives. Come to Jesus Christ. But Jesus knew what it was to trust God. In the wilderness, the devil came to him after fasting 40 days and says, turn these stones into bread. Jesus wouldn't do it. Why? Because he continued to depend upon God. He didn't take matters into his own hands. He wouldn't decide to disobey his heavenly father and get in control because he was faithful. In every way. He died as our substitute and took the punishment we deserved for our will to have power. That means today you can go to him and know if you believe not just in him, but believe in him, he is your substitute. Your sins are wiped away and you put yourself in the hands of a father who knows what you need. And thus we can live for him because he'll take care of it all. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Straight from the Psalms. And that's something we can be thankful for. A king who is a strong tower in my life day by day by day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this word which reminds us that you're sovereign. You got this. And we can trust you. Even when things seem amiss, we know of who you are and what you've done. We thank you for your great love for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray now that you would enable us by faith to commit our lives to you in entirety. We commit ourselves to you in every way. And walk with you in obedience, for that's where we have abundance of life. And Lord, we pray that you would now come and meet us at your table. And that, Lord, by receiving your mercy and grace in the communion, that we would be fed well to go forth with this good news in our lives. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.